Birds, Patient and Public Engagement podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this podcast, which is the first episode in our podcast series about osteoporosis. I'm Mel Brook, Birds, Patient and Public Engagement Director. And today, in this episode, I'll be talking to Dr Sarah Hardcastle, who is a consultant rheumatologist at the Royal National Hospital for Rheumatic Diseases in Bath. To start with, I'll be asking Sarah to tell us what is known about osteoporosis, a general overview, and how it's assessed. And then we'll talk about fractures, falls and other risks. Later, we'll also discuss what treatments exist and the lifestyle factors that could influence the condition. Hi Sarah, thanks for being with us today and for being part of our osteoporosis mini-series. No problem. Can we start by talking about um, what osteoporosis is and all the whys and wherefores of why people might get it? So... Osteoporosis is basically um, a term that's used to describe the thinning and weakening of bones. And over this time, this thinning and weakening will leave bones prone to breaking or fracturing. So in osteoporosis, there's a reduction in the amount of bone that's present and also a change in its structure. And that makes it less able to withstand any forces that are put upon it, such as as occurs during a fall or an impact. So to diagnose osteoporosis, we use a scan called a DEXA scan, and that basically compares the amount of bone a person has or their bone density with that of a young, healthy person, generating a score called a T-score. And once that T-score gets low enough, we call it osteoporosis. I think, is there a typical kind of population that this affects or is it quite widespread? So it's certainly pretty common um, and um, it's estimated that over three million people in the UK are affected. Um, But it's important to realise that it becomes much more common the older you get. So, for example, only around 2% of women at the age of 50 will have osteoporosis. But once you get to 80 and above, it can be anything from 25 up to 50%. Um, And it's also a lot commoner in women although it is really important to remember that men can be affected too. Um, Mm -hmm. It can occur in younger people below the age of 50, but that is relatively rare. And when that happens, there's usually a reason why. So most patients with um, osteoporosis are above the age of 50, and that's usually the age at which doctors will start to consider it and start to, to potentially look for it in the right situation. And do we know why, why it occurs? Mm. So that's a really good question. Sort of certainly we're still actively researching. Um, but what we do know is that during a person's lifetime, there are a number of changes in the skeleton. So up until about the age of 30, the amount of bone in someone's skeleton is gradually increasing. So up until puberty, obviously the bones are growing and lengthening. And then after that, there's a gradual thickening and strengthening of the bones, um, leading eventually to what we call peak bone mass. So around sort of 30. 35 that's the most bone that you'll have um, in your lifetime and then after this point the body does start to gradually lose bone but it is a slow process so however there are other external factors that can be important such as falls and other medical conditions or medications so I could go through a few of those um, predisposing factors if if that would be helpful yeah I think that would be useful thanks Great. Um, So, yeah, there are certainly quite a few known risk factors for osteoporosis and and fracture. And these are the things that we'll generally ask about when patients come to clinic or when they attend for their DEXA scan. 
So we certainly know that genes play a part in your risk of developing osteoporosis and also your risk of certain fractures such as hip fractures. But there are usually lots of different genes involved. So with a few exceptions, there isn't usually a single gene that we can test for. Um, And there are also lots of environmental factors we know are important. So diet and nutrition is one. um, And in particular, a lack of calcium or vitamin D can contribute to osteoporosis and poor bone health. Um, Mm. And things like alcohol and smoking also have an adverse effect on the bones. And there are also several medications such as steroids and certain can also reduce bone density. Just to say for our listeners, when the line dropped then, uh, when Sarah was talking, she mentioned certain cancer treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know that exercise um, plays an important part and is important for building bones. Um, so some medical conditions which can cause immobility, for example, can lead to osteoporosis. Yeah. So there are lots of different factors that, that we need to, to consider um, in terms of why an individual person might have developed osteoporosis. OK, and I think probably... Um... We've got a a physiopod for OP, so I think we'll probably cover some of the exercise, which will be good. Great. Yeah. So what are the typical symptoms that people with osteoporosis experience? So, well, this is one of the interesting things about osteoporosis is that it actually causes no symptoms at all until the person breaks a bone. So just having osteoporosis itself doesn't lead to any symptoms. So it's quite common for people to come along to the clinic wondering if their general aches and pains are due to their osteoporosis. But this Mm. is almost never the case. Mm. Um, The one exception I would mention, though, would be vertebral or backbone fractures, because these can occur without somebody necessarily being aware of them at the time and can lead on to longer term symptoms such as back pain and curvature of the spine. Um, And sometimes we don't know about those fractures until we do an x-ray or further tests. So um, when we suspect a vertebral fracture, normally um, what the patient's experienced is sort of sudden onset of back pain, which is localised to one particular area of the back. So that Mm. would sort of be the typical presentation. But, you know, it sometimes happens that people have had a number of vertebral fractures that have been sort of clinically silent. So we haven't necessarily um, they haven't necessarily realised they've happened at the time. And then the back pain might just build up more gradually. But usually we're looking for a sort of fairly sudden onset. Okay, in addition to vertebral fractures, what are the other main risks of osteoporosis and how do you calculate the risk of fractures in the future? Yeah, so basically the main risk of osteoporosis is fractures, as you know, um, mm. and these can occur anywhere in the body potentially, but there are a few fractures that we would consider to be typical of osteoporosis. And the main ones would be a hip fracture or femoral neck fracture, to be more precise. Um, vertebral or backbone fractures, as we've discussed. Wrist fractures are very typical and also humerus or upper arm fractures. Um, and similarly, there are some fractures which don't necessarily necessarily point towards osteoporosis as a cause and these are things like finger and toe fractures but obviously people with underlying osteoporosis might also still get those fractures but they're not the typical ones that we see. Um, And one of the ways that we decide whether a fracture is likely to relate to osteoporosis is in terms of the level of impact involved. So, for Mm -hmm. example, a fall from the top of a ladder might be expected to result in a fracture, whereas if a person just falls over in the street and breaks a bone, that would suggest the possibility of weak bones. Um, Mm -hmm. 
So in general, a fracture occurring after a fall from standing height or less is what we would consider a low trauma or fragility fracture. And you'll come across mm -hmm. those, those terms we'll use in our, our letters. Um, in terms of calculating risk, um, we do have a number of risk assessment tools that we use, um, and the most common one is something called FRAX. And basically what it involves is inputting various different bits of information, including the patient's age, height, weight, and some of the risk factors we discussed earlier into an online form. And then the computer algorithm estimates a person's risk of fracture over the next 10 years. And the way it does that is it uses huge amounts of patient data that's been collected from lots of different studies to come up with a, an estimate. Um, the calculation becomes more accurate if you can add in the person's measured bone density from a DEXA scan. Um, and that's something I guess we might come on to in the, in the next section. But we, we do use those um, risk calculation tools um, very readily and, 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 and you know, most of the time um, when we're looking at patients' um, risk. You mentioned femoral neck. Is that part of the hip or? Yes, it is. So um, basically, if you think of the, the, the hip bone or femur, um, there's a ball sitting on the top um, and then there's um, the long length of the bone and there's a sort of narrower bit of bone that connects the two. And that tends to be where fractures around the hip occur. And we call that the femoral neck. Right. OK, thanks for clarifying that. And no does osteoporosis affect the rest of the body we talk about fractures and things does it affect the body in any other ways mm. so in general it is a bone disease um but there are a couple of other body areas that it's just worth mentioning um so first of all there's a lot of interest at the moment in the relationship between muscle and bone as we notice that people with osteoporosis often also have a loss of muscle bulk and strength and actually that can be quite a bad combination as weak muscles lead on to falls which further increases the risk of fractures and actually that loss of muscle has now been given a name we call it sarcopenia um, and there's a lot of research currently going on into into this and and you know who knows what that will result in in future mm. um, but I also just wanted to come back to vertebral fractures, the backbone fractures we discussed earlier. Um, so mm -hmm. unfortunately, people with osteoporosis or low bone density who have one vertebral fracture can often go on to have, have several. Um, and every time a fracture happens in the vertebra, um, it actually remains permanently squashed down. Um, mm. So over time, that can lead to a loss of height um, and a stooped over posture. And what we now increasingly realise is that that can have knock on effects on other parts of the body. For example, it can affect a person's lungs and breathing, and it can also cause things like digestive problems and tummy discomfort. So those are important symptoms to consider in as part of the overall burden of the disease. But obviously, we would aim to intervene before things get, get to that point. Right. OK, so there's some really other important factors to consider there. So, Sarah, can you tell us what happens in an osteoporosis clinic and how it's assessed and diagnosed. Okay, so um, if you come along to the osteoporosis clinic, the first thing we'll want to do is talk to you about your bones. So in particular, we'll want to know about any fractures which have happened, when they happened and how they happened. And that's what we call the mechanism of, of, of fracture. Um, 
we might want to examine you for a number of reasons, and that includes looking for signs of vertebral fractures that you may not be aware of, looking for features of other conditions related to osteoporosis. And it's also quite likely that at some point we'll want you to have a bone density scan or DEXA scan. And as I mentioned before, that's because osteoporosis or low bone density doesn't necessarily cause any symptoms. So the scan gives us important information on your future fracture risk. And that is what we use to determine whether or not you need treatment to reduce that risk. So sometimes right. the DEXA scan will be done before clinic and it might be the reason you're referred in the first place um, or at other times it may be done on the same day. Um, and other tests that we might do include blood tests and x-rays um, and all of this is aimed to, to estimating fracture risk and, and we might use one of our, the, our risk calculators such as FRAX which I mentioned earlier to help us with this. Um, so fracture risk is the key thing that determines whether you're going to be offered treatment. So it might surprise people to know that we don't actually always recommend treating pe people whose DEXA scan shows osteoporosis in terms of the numbers, as actually their fracture risk mm -hmm. might not be that high. Um, and other patients may not have osteoporosis in terms of the numbers on their scan, but they still have a very high risk of fracture. So we take a range of factors into account when deciding whether or not to start treatment. And obviously, we would always discuss our reasoning with the patient and try and come to a sort of shared decision on that. Um, one thing I will mention is that for a lot of patients, we are able to advise on the best treatment for their osteoporosis or low bone density without them needing to come to clinic, just based on the DEXA scan and information they provide on their risk factors. And that's what we call our direct access DEXA service. So after the scan has been done, it will be looked at by one of the consultants or nurse specialists and a report sent out to the GP with the treatment recommendations. So that can be suitable when things are not too complicated. For example, if treatment's not required or the recommended treatment involves tablets that the GP can prescribe. But for more complicated cases or if, it, if an infusion or injectable treatment is felt to be needed, that's when we'll usually see the person in clinic. The other thing I will just mention is that actually a DEXA scan is not needed in 100% of cases. So, for example, in people who have a typical fracture, such as a hip fracture or vertebral fracture, and are aged over 75, we can just assume that osteoporosis is likely to be present. And we would recommend just getting on and starting treatment without the need for a scan. And that's in line with national guidance. And it reduces the need for so many scans and clinic visits, certainly for sort of frail, frailer and older people. Okay, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, that's really interesting. No problem, no problem. And we talked about a bit about how it's how it's assessed in clinic with DEXA mm. scans and things like that. So yeah. what medications and treatments would someone be able to have for this condition? It sounds like it could be quite painful. Mm. What, what kinds of things? Mm. Okay, um, so... When you come to the osteoporosis clinic, actually, what we tend to focus more on is sort of reducing your risk of future fracture. So in terms of actually managing the fractures that have already occurred, um, that, that tends to be something that happens more sort of in the acute phase, probably before you've got to clinic. So, you know, if, if you break a hip, obviously, or something like that, it's obviously very painful um, and you would have all the usual standard painkillers and things. And most people who have a hip fracture will have an operation for that. Um, in terms of things 
things like vertebral fractures, um, you know, that can cause, as I say, longer term pain. And again, that's something that, you know, we can discuss the best types of painkilling medication, but also things like physio will have a role in terms of changing the way that certain daily activities are done and uh, posture and all of that kind of thing. So it's important to sort of talk about that. But in terms of your appointment in the osteoporosis clinic, we tend to focus on future fracture risk. Um, so we'll do a risk assessment, as we've already discussed, um, which usually will involve a DEXA scan, but not necessarily. Um, and then we'll decide whether the risk of fracture in the future warrants treatment. So it doesn't mm-hmm. always. Um, but you know, if we do recommend treatment, um, then there are several different ones available. So the most common type is, is something that we call anti-resorptive treatment. And that basically means treatments that stop bones from being broken down. Mm-hmm. Um, and of, of those, the most common that we use are are bisphosphonates, and most people I think will have probably heard of those. Um, mm-hmm. So examples would include alendronate and resedronate, and they're both once weekly tablets. So we also have a bisphosphonate called abandronate, um, which can be given once a month. Um, so I think I would say that bisphosphonate tablets are suitable for most patients with osteoporosis and high fracture risk. So this is usually what we would try first. Um, mm-hmm. And G- So there may actually be no need to see a specialist um, in all cases. Like all medications, there are potential side effects from them and they won't suit everybody. Um, And the most common side effects that we see are stomach problems such as acid reflux, bloating and nausea. Um, And if that happens, then we do have other anti-resorptive treatments that we can give by injection. And by bypassing the gut, those side effects are avoided. So one of these drugs, selenate, is another bisphosphonate given as a once a year infusion or drip. Mm-hmm. And the other is denosumab, which is given as a six monthly injection under the skin. Um, and patients having those treatments, the injectable ones are usually under the care of a specialist, but they all f- fall under that umbrella of anti-resorptive treatment. Mm-hmm. And we do have another category of treatments called anabolic therapies. Um, And these medications differ from from the ones I've just mentioned as rather than stopping the bones from being broken down, they actually stimulate the bone building cells. So the most common of those is called teraparatide. And that's given as a once daily injection, which patients actually learn to give themselves at home. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that medication isn't suitable for everyone. And it's usually reserved for the most severe cases of osteoporosis or when either other treatments have failed or they can't be used. So that is a less common one. There are a couple of other ones that we very rarely use. And one is a hormonal treatment called raloxifene. And there's another medication called strontium, which actually was um, went away for a few years, um, but has just come back onto the market, which has a weaker bone building effect. But those are, again, things that we tend to reserve if the more common treatments aren't suitable for some reason. So those will be the common ones. This is quite a mix of medications there and options, isn't there, for people? Yeah, definitely. So that, that's good news. Is there a kind of a window of opportunity to treat it once it's recognised and get it mm-hmm. under control? 
Yeah, so not really. So the treatment decisions are usually based on fracture risk at the time. Okay. Um, and even severe osteoporosis, if it's not been picked up for a, for a long time, and then we see somebody can respond really well to treatment. And mm. um, the only thing I would say that, as I mentioned earlier, we do try really hard to avoid patients getting into the situation where they've got multiple vertebral fractures, as once those deformities occur, they are permanent. And that can lead to a lot of disability. So we do try to stop that from happening as, as hard as we can mm. and I think earlier we we talked about lifestyle choices so things mm. like exercise and not uh, drinking and smoking and things like that and getting getting your vitamin d and calcium so diet mm. diet comes into this quite a lot diet and nutrition is this yes weight I'm guessing that that you know obviously it's better for someone to maintain a healthy weight if they've got weaker bones Mm. So so a healthy weight is definitely the term I would use. Mm. Actually being underweight rather than being overweight tends to be worse for bones. Mm. So that is one of the risk factors for, for developing osteoporosis and low bone density. So, yeah, definitely avoiding being underweight. Yeah. Um, ideally, a healthy weight. Um, for people who are overweight, it's quite interesting because your risk of getting low bone density is probably less but actually your risk of breaking a bone if you do fall for certain types of fracture is higher. So there's sort of quite a complex interplay mm. between some of these things, but aiming for a healthy weight is definitely what I would advocate. Yeah. And in terms of vitamin D, is that, that is the sunshine and, and calcium. Is that like your dairy? Yeah. So basically, um, yeah, ensuring there's enough calcium in your diet. And normally the thing that we will ask about sort of quite quickly in clinic is dairy products, because that's the most common dietary source of, of calcium. Um, so we'll usually sort of be able to quite quickly tot up in clinic whether somebody's getting enough. Um, however, there are more detailed um, dietary calcium calculators that people can access online. And they'll ask you a much more detailed sort of questionnaire about all the different sources of calcium you might have in a week and give you an average daily amount. And you can have a look and see whether that meets the recommendations. So they can be quite useful. If there's That's quite useful. Yeah, definitely. So if there's any doubt, um, generally supplementation is, is the way we would go, certainly in people who have established osteoporosis or low bone density with fractures. Um, we would we would recommend that they, they take a, a supplement um, generally quite well tolerated. Occasionally people won't get on with them um, for whatever reason. Um, in terms of vitamin D, you're right. Um, sunshine on the skin is a better source than diet, actually, most of the time. Um, vitamin D is the thing that it is quite hard to maintain at a good level throughout the year, particularly if you're spending the whole year in the UK. So even if patients don't need a calcium supplement, um, if they do have osteoporosis, we generally recommend that they will be on a vitamin D supplement at least during the winter months, if not all year round. Um, so that's certainly very important. Yeah. And obviously the thing with sunshine is bal balancing it versus uh you know the risk of getting too much and skin cancers and things like that absolutely absolutely so with all of these things it's a, it's a balance as you say i mean generally sort of 15 to 20 minutes of, of, of sunlight exposure on the skin on a sunny day um you know will be sufficient to get your vitamin d levels up without increasing your risk of, of those other things and then after that you can put, pop your sunscreen on and 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 you know mm -hmm. seek shade as you normally would so so that would be the kind of advice we would give Okay. Um, is there a patient advice line or clinic? I'm, I'm, we are talking to Jackie Webb at some point. I'm guessing some of that will come from, from her information. 
Yeah, so so we do. And it's Jackie that runs our patient advice line. So the number for that will be on the paperwork we send out from DEXA scans and clinics. Um, and it is an answer phone. Um, so you need to leave a message and then Jackie will get back to you um, when, when she can. And um, we also run regular face-to-face osteoporosis information sessions, which patients can attend. Obviously, they're not running at the moment with the COVID situation, but we'll hope to resume those um, in due course. So hopefully people will find those helpful as well. Absolutely. And those will give people, I'm guessing, more tips for staying well and therapy goals and things like that. Absolutely. So in terms of sort of what people can do to help themselves, there are just a couple of other things I was going to mention, actually. So so um, we talked about some of the lifestyle factors that contribute to, to bone density. But the other thing to mm that we try to emphasize is falls prevention because most pa- most fractures in patients with osteoporosis do happen after a fall so if we can prevent those right. from happening then we achieve our goal of avoiding fractures um, so right. we right. usually do a falls risk assessment alongside the DEXA scan or clinic visit and we might then go on to mm-hmm. recommend a visit to a falls and balance clinic if we think that might be helpful for an individual person. Um, The other thing I was going to mention as well is um, about medication. Um, So in terms of sort of helping, helping yourself um, is taking the medication regularly if it is prescribed for you. Um, I mean, it sounds like a really simple and obvious thing, but actually what we know from research studies is that up to 50% of patients will stop taking their bisphosphonate tablets within a year or don't take them correctly. And that's probably partly because the medication doesn't actually make people feel immediately better in the short term. It's all about reducing the risk of fractures in the future. And it can be awkward, obviously, to remember a weekly tablet. Um, And it's also really important to follow sort of the dosing instructions and the rules such as not eating or drinking for at least half to three quarters of an hour after taking the tablets and staying upright Mm -hmm. after you've taken them. Because if you don't do that, then it may not work properly. Um, And and if, if somebody's done all this but the medication really isn't suiting them then it's always better to go back and let your doctor know as there might as as we've mentioned there are lots of different alternatives that we can potentially try Mm. instead so certainly not just stopping the medication and and hoping for the best really yes I think I had a patient question sent through about this Mm. and um, saying that that sometimes it seems like other patients just take themselves off medication so that's obviously really important to not do um, yeah. For whatever reason, they, they need to they need to tell their um, HCPs, you know, if they want to do that and why, then there might be an alternative. So that's quite an important message, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And it, yeah, it's, some of it is about using the treatments that we already have most effectively, as well as sort of potentially looking for new treatments in the future. So so I definitely emphasize that. OK, thanks. And is it are is it worth screening for other conditions you know do things like diabetes have an impact on someone with osteoporosis Mm. so so type 1 diabetes is one of the um potential risk factors for low bone density um and and actually um it also we we know that people with diabetes can have more fractures even if their bone density isn't that low and that brings us on to a sort of area we we call bone quality which is less well understood but certainly that is one of the risk factors we recognize so um there are a few of these different conditions which can contribute um and we tend to look for those when somebody has an unusually low bone density for their age and that sort of flags up to us on their scan that something else might be going on 
So examples of that would include um, a condition called celiac disease, which causes malabsorption of, of nutrients. Um, there's another condition called hyperparathyroidism, where the calcium controlling glands in the neck can become overactive. Or there's another condition called myeloma, which affects the blood and can also affect the bones. So before seeing somebody in clinic, we'll actually often ask the GP to do a series of blood tests to look into these possibilities. And obviously, if we find any abnormality, we'll investigate further. But as I say, it tends to be then triggered off by, by an unusually low bone density for age is when we would look for those things. Right. OK. And. And how does oste having osteoporosis affect people's kind of mental well-being? I'm, I'm guessing, you know, they, they might be fearful of falling and they lacking confidence or... Mm, absolutely. So, yes, yeah, so this is something that we increasingly recognise. Unfortunately, there is a lot more support out there now than there once was. Um, so being told mm -hmm. that your bones are weak and fragile can obviously be a really scary thing. And it can lead to anxiety or fear of going out and exercising. And ironically, that is another thing that is bad for the bones. So we really want to sort of encourage people to remain active. Um, and we also know that people with vertebral fractures can suffer with persistent back pain and if the deformity in the back is severe, it can lead to, to um, loss of confidence and embarrassment. And as, as doctors, we try to recognise and discuss these things. And there are some really useful publications and websites which deal with the, these issues, which I think we'll come on to. OK, thanks. So I think we, we've covered quite a lot. And I'm just wondering, we touched on um, research earlier. You said there's quite a lot mm. of research especially going on in um was it sarcopenia what's research saying about osteoporosis currently mm. so there's research going on all of the time really which is helping us to understand the condition much better um, and and we want to understand a few things really first of all how best to use the treatments we already have um and that's an area that you know lots of studies are looking at but also how to develop new treatments in the future and there are some new medications on the horizon for example there is a new anabolic or bone building treatment called romasozumab um, which was approved for use in Europe towards the end of last year and should hopefully be becoming available soon um, that again is likely to be sort of more of a second line treatment not one that's going to be widely used but it's again a useful tool to have um, for patients who need something different from the standard Standard treatment um, and hopefully there may be more new treatments coming along in the future um, another area that's we're getting interested in now is also a sort of osteoporosis in the developing world sort of now that um, life expectancy in a lot of developing countries is increasing it's becoming more of a problem and looking at how we should approach this so there's lots of different interesting areas um, that, that, that of, of active research so watch this space really yeah, that's good news. It's always good news to hear that there's lots of um, lots of new research going on and that, you know, potentially that improves the situation and options for patients going forward. So that's mm. good. Thank you. Are there current trials running at the RNHRD? So actually, no, at the moment, we don't have any um, trials running in osteoporosis. But obviously, we're always on the lookout for opportunities to do that and involve our patients in studies. And um, we do contribute data to some sort of national research. And there's something called the 
fractal liaison service database which we're contributing data to all of the time and so there is some mm-hmm. ongoing contributions to things like that um, so I think um, the important thing to say is that if you know you are somebody who's coming to clinic and interested in participating in research it's always worth letting the doctor and clinic know because we can make a note on the patient's record that they're happy to be contacted in future if there are opportunities mm. And and we certainly have um, people who come to us and who would be interested in any kind of patient involvement. So Brilliant. that's good. So you, we can always share those between us, can't Absolutely. we? Absolutely. Yeah, great. that's great. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Sarah, about links and things? I think we've got Ros. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I would very much second that. You know, Ros is a very good, the website is brilliant as a source of really good and reliable information. Um, a lot of it's written specifically for patients. Um, and generally, the information leaflets that we give out in the clinic are the ones that have come from Ros. So we very much sort of uh, vouch for their information. Yeah. Um the thing that I would say to just bear in mind is that the internet is obviously a really useful tool in terms of getting more information but there's also an awful lot of misinformation out there so just Mm -hmm. it's always worth checking that any websites you're visiting are reliable and and yeah I think it's great if you're going to put together some some reliable links I think that's really important fantastic okay that's all great Sarah thanks so much for being with us today that was really interesting and there's a lot of information there I think that hopefully will be really helpful to people um, listening in Um, and I hope that um, you know we can do this kind of thing again in future yep no problem at all certainly be happy to help again in the future and nice to talk to you huge thanks to Dr Sarah Hardcastle today for talking to us about osteoporosis Um, We'd love you to fill in our feedback form. There's a link in the text description for this podcast. And if you're interested in hearing more about future podcasts and the research engagement opportunities that come our way, please sign up to our mailing list. You'll need to send an email to admin at birdbath.org.uk. We would also like to thank Health Watch Bath and North East Somerset for helping to fund this podcast.